Welcome to the Dipshit Files, episode 71. I'm Mr. Scriptkeeper. And I'm Mrs. Scriptkeeper. And you brought us something just awful. <laughs> I did. It's called, we're calling this one, Three Vile Crimes and Depraved Actions. It's fucking terrible. <laughs> yeah. So this was meant to incite friendly friends. Yes. They're on standby. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's what's going on. So anything you want to give the listener before we get to it this one absolutely comes with a warning no oh, super prior to listening make sure you're not eating anything <laughs> sit down relax mm-hmm. and if you're if you're sensitive to depravity you might not want to listen to this one okay it's well, pretty it's pretty bad let's open up the file So we had several individuals write in over the past handful of weeks, months, actually, requesting some friendly friends. Yay. And I have produced a few shows or put a few shows out there that didn't require didn't entice the friendly friends to come out. Mm. So Well, they could have come out. Well, my whole my whole focus was to encourage them to pop their heads out of You found the, the worst ether. shit you could find, I did. <laughs> I did oh, on purpose. On purpose. Oh, you evil. These are, all three of these stories are true stories. <sighs> I did not go into massive detail. I did. I went into detail on these, but I didn't go into a massive research project on these. A okay. couple of them, they're fairly short stories, and m- they're mostly recent stories. Two of them happened within the last, oh, goodness, 15 years, and one happened about 45 years ago. Okay. So we're just going to dig in. I have three gross stories for you. Oh, great. <laughs> hey, next week, can we do something fun? We are going to do something fun next week. Yeah, next week is epic stories, epic cool. tales. Okay. More of those. So All right. just bear with me this week. All right. Bring on the eh guy. Fucked up story number one. Joel Guy Jr. lived in Knoxville, Tennessee in November of 2016. Joel murdered his parents, dismembered their bodies, and then he tried to dissolve their remains in acid while boiling his mom's head on the stove. (laughs) Joel Guy Jr. was born on March 13, 1988. He's a junior, so they had to distinguish him from his dad, so they called him Joel Michael. Joel and Lisa Guy were married for 31 years. Joel had three daughters from a previous marriage, so Joel had, Joel Michael Jr., mm-hmm. had three half-sisters. Now, this horrific event took place right after Thanksgiving, and this would literally be the worst thing that these police officers had ever experienced. The family said that Joel Guy Jr., or Joel Michael, was kind of failing at a lot of things in life. He was in college for nine years straight and never received a degree. He was financially supported by his parents for years and years after adulthood. I imagine this can be one of the least of his personality flaws. At this time that this happened, he was living in Baton Rouge and was totally dependent on them. And apparently his parents were going to cut him off after Thanksgiving. Uh They even told the daughters this. But to this day, it's unclear if Joel knew about this decision. Now, he was going to a university to be a plastic surgeon. So 
after you hear about everything he did, it's going to be kind of creepy that he was wanting to be a doctor and operate on people. Hmm. Joel Guy Sr. and Lisa were about ready to retire. They had just sold their home in Knoxville, Tennessee, and they were planning on moving back to their native town in Kingsport, Tennessee. And records show that this plan was happening just days after the Thanksgiving holiday. Joel Guy Sr. was an engineer and his wife worked in human services. She loved her job. However, she said that her salary was meager in comparison to her husband's. She was set to officially retire the day after Thanksgiving, but they would never get the chance to even start their retirement. Joel Jr. had made it his business to know everything he could about his parents' finances. He knew how much money they had in the bank. He was aware of their monthly income. And he also knew about their life insurance policies. My dad would go hide in a closet when he was doing money shit. Right. It was just a thing they did in the 80s. Well, evidently, Joel had spent years snooping around like a creepy financial stalker. Like most Americans, the Guy family had gathered, they all gathered for Thanksgiving. They prepared a huge meal, and Joel Sr. and Lisa were so happy to have their daughters with them for Thanksgiving and their son all under one roof. Mm-hmm. From what I understand, Joel Jr. and his half-sisters were never really close, with Joel Jr. closed off in a room playing video games most holidays. I can empathize. Now, at this point, the Guy family had no idea what Joel was about to do. On the Monday evening after Thanksgiving, uh, the Thanksgiving holiday weekend, neighbors stood on their lawns wondering why crime scene tape and law enforcement filled their neighborhood in West, West Knox County. When Lisa hadn't shown up for work that day, Several of her co-workers had called for a welfare check, as this was extremely uncharacteristic for Lisa. For years, she had never missed a day of work and had always been on time. So when the police opened the door, they were immediately hit with a strong smell of chemicals and noticed how blazing hot the house was. They knew something was wrong before they had even stepped inside. Now, just inside the front door were grocery bags full of food, as if someone had brought them inside and just forgot about them. As the police began their sweep of the house, it took less than 30 seconds before they were all absolutely horrified. It was stated that the crime scene had so much blood evidence and DNA literally everywhere that it only took uh, the police a few days to find Joel and arrest him. Hmm. It was discovered that he had stabbed his father 42 times and his mother 31 times. Additionally, he had planned this whole thing. He had a notebook with with what he was going to do step by step. After he attacked his parents and killed them both, he began the dismemberment process, flushing parts of their flesh down the toilet. Joel had underestimated how tough dismembering a body would be and never one that that seemed to embrace any sort of a challenge. Joel decided he would need to improvise. It seems like every single one of these I've researched, they all are like, oh, I really underestimated sawing bones. I know. I thought that would be a lot easier to saw through (laughs) pelvic bones. Right. I guess you you don't think of that. It's not easy. Not that I've ever actually done that, but it's not easy. But you've worn like a power saw. Right. A jigsaw. Try not to murder people and cut up their bones out there. Just saying. He then removed his mother's head and placed it in a pot on the stove 
to boil. His next step in the notebook was to douse the living room or kitchen with bleach, depending on where he dismembered their bodies. Avoid the carpet. Then he was going to deflesh their bodies and flush the chunks down the toilet, not in the garbage disposal, because he was afraid it would clog the pipes. Mm. Don't want to do that. This dipshit really planned this. I'm, mm. I'm serious. He had he had this all written out like in a checklist form, and it's just super creepy. Yeah. So while the scene was over-the-top gruesome and the crime itself was shocking, it was obvious what the motive was, and that was his parents' life insurance policy. If they came up missing or dead, the beneficiary would get $500,000 each. Easy money. So... He apparently was the beneficiary. Mm. Okay. Once again, a criminal mastermind goes Wiley Coyote. So after the sisters and their kids left and then went back to their homes, the day after Thanksgiving, Joel Jr. had gone to the store and bought these giant plastic bins and containers and then a case of bleach. In his notes, he wrote down that bleach would help decomposition and it would melt their fingertips. He also wrote that if his home was set at 90 degrees, it would speed up the process. Now, this is why the house was so hot. A bit later that day, while his mother was out shopping, he then attacked his father and stabbed him in their exercise room over 40 times. That's fucking crazy. Then when his mother got back from grocery shopping, he attacked her the same way he did his dad and stabbed her over 30 times. The knife pierced his dad's lungs, his liver, and and severed several of his ribs. And he had actually severed nine of his mother's ribs. Before going back to his apartment, to watch friends, Joel Guy Jr. severed his dad's hands and then removed his father's arms at the shoulders and then just left them in a pile on the floor, which which is weird. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm thinking like if you're going to do this and it, I mean, do it smart. Don't just leave shit sitting around for the cops to walk right in and see, right? Yeah, he did well, all this research, and then he's like, "Well, I'll just we're put just the gonna pile them up." Evidently, Joel was too lazy to finish the job that he had started. He then cut off his father's legs and removed his father's feet at the ankles, and then just piled them up in the exercise room. Fucking goddamn it! Now the body, his father's body, had defense wounds all over it. It was really in bad shape. You could tell his dad had fought as hard as he did. And his mom fought as well. These poor people. Mm-hmm. Now, Joel would repeat this dismemberment method with his mother, along with decapitating her. He placed his parents' torsos <sighs> in these huge containers that he bought on Thanksgiving and then set the house to 90 degrees. Now, what follows is an excerpt from the trial given by one of the first pol- response police officers and about what he had experienced. Quote, I Fuck. actually... <laughs> Sorry, I thought that would... I was just <sighs> assuming it was that. All right, so quote, I actually jumped the fence. I went to the back with another officer, got down, and then got up on the door. Observed that there was a doorknob missing on the back door and the glass was warm from the inside of the house like you could just tell that the door was warm and there was some kind of strange odor that I observed. I don't know if I actually verbalized it, but I know that it was more or less just a feeling, a sensation, a feeling very odd or something very ominous about this, Hmm. end quote. When the police arrived, all of the officers had this strange feeling as if something was really wrong. 
They thought it strange that the parents' cars were in the driveway, not to mention that the house was just sold, so they thought it was odd that there wasn't a real estate key box lock on the home. It appears that it had been removed. So that was when they went around the back of the home. They said they could feel the heat literally coming from the house. But when they started smelling some kind of weird chemical, quote-unquote, stench, and they just had a horrible feeling. When they looked inside before they entered, they could see the grocery bags with items like ice cream, sausages, you know, groceries in need of refrigeration in the foyer, Mm -hmm. and that they shouldn't have been there. They should have been put away, but they were scattered across the floor, so it looked like somebody had been attacked. At this point, they knew they had to gain access to the home, so they got into one of the vehicles and pressed the garage door opener. Hmm. The garage doors opened up and they had access to the house. So they get inside, and what they see first is a table with a sledgehammer on it. Lisa and Joel's wallets were on the table, and they were like, okay, something's really wrong. Some things happen. They so you don't have a sledgehammer as the centerpiece. No, no. Dinner so, table. <laughs> right next to wallets. Yeah. So they started walking downstairs, and that's when they just see a foot in the hallway. <laughs> Oh, okay. There's just a foot hanging out with nobody. Well, look what the cat probably brought in, I'm hoping. <laughs> with nobody connected to it. Mm-hmm. And so they knew shit was going to get insane. They passed the groceries that were lying on the ground in the foyer. That's where they see a pot sitting on the stove. And the stove was actually on. So one of the officers goes over, lifts up the lid, mm-hmm. and he's looking at Joel's mother's face Fuck. being boiled in the pot. I wonder what sort of like initial reaction a person would have to something uh, like that. Well, it would be uncontrollable, I imagine. Well, the the officer said that none of them will ever get the smell out of their minds or out of their dreams. Oh, oh well, that would be. They said this was literally one of the worst things they had ever walked into. I can't even imagine seeing that. They said that the dissolving body parts was like a stew of human remains Uh, just sitting there because he tried to dissolve those things. He tried to melt their fingertips, mm -hmm, quote unquote, mm -hmm. but you know, they were all still intact. All right, fucking friendly friends. Friendly friends are friendly as fuck. Well, hey kids, I'm an animal that you like with my pal, Hugsy the bear. (laughs) Hey kids. You know, Hugsy, I'm curious. (laughs) What advice would you give to a chitron if they stumble across a pot or pan (laughs) with a decapitated head boiling inside? It's time to get an adult. Good idea, Hugsy. But if there's no adults around, I always keep this flamethrower handy. (laughs) 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 Oh, watch out. Oh, Hugsy. (laughs) Sorry, I got a little carried away, Hugsy. (laughs) Oh, fuck, I'm gonna have to bury his body. (laughs) I'm still alive. Oh, yeah. Sorry. (laughs) Needed that. So the body parts were all still intact, and that's how the officers could tell which each, what each body part was. Now, the walls were covered in blood. There was blood covered clothing. There was blood everywhere. Just obvious things that pointed them to the sun. They found the notebook also. This dipshit left this behind. The notebook with his list. They found that at the crime scene. Hmm. And it had listed things like hide forensic evidence, (laughs) place to hide the bodies. He didn't quite follow through with the whole checklist. That's what happens with people. Fucking lazy ass. You got to check off all the boxes. Uh, So he wanted to make sure he flushed them down the toilet. Literally, (laughs) 
He had made a checklist of the things that he was going to do. Hmm. Joel, he's got, he's got like two or three plungers. He's like, I'll probably break one. So oh, I got I two or three. Well, Joel even tried to set up automated texts on his mom's phone to send himself a text that day to make it seem like they were still alive while he made his way back to his apartment in Baton Rouge. Hmm. So at the end of this list, Joel had actually written out that five hundred thousand dollars will be all mine in the same book as his yes <laughs> if they were missing or dead uh. fucking creepy psycho so anyway he literally wrote this at the end all mine wow on october 2nd 2020 joel guy jr was found guilty of two counts of premeditated first degree murder three counts of felony murder and two counts of abuse of a corpse and was sentenced to life in prison hmm. good riddance but we're still feeding him creepy by the way yeah creepy creepy guy yeah so anybody who wants to look up joel guy jr joel mike guy jr pictures yikes all right so you ready for story number two let's do story number two now it's time for creepy fuckhead number two Juan Vallejo Corona was born in a rural population in the state of Jalisco, Mexico on February 7th, 1934. He was one of 10 children to his parents, Sebastian and Candida Corona. Juan's older three siblings were his half-siblings from his father's previous marriage, with the eldest being Natavidad. By 1950, Juan had turned 16, and he wasn't interested in pursuing an education, so he dropped out of school. He instead followed Natavidad's footsteps and immigrated to California, where he found work on farms in the Imperial and Sacramento Valleys. For three months, Juan picked carrots and melons just to make ends meet. Natavidad invited Juan to move to the Marysville, Yuba City metropolitan area, and in May 1953, he accepted. Here, Juan met his first wife, and her name was Gabriela. The two married on October 24th at the urging of her parents. Sadly, the union wouldn't last more than three months. Mm. In late December 1955, a flood in the Yuba and Feather Rivers broke a levee and flooded much of the Sacramento Valley, including large sections of Yuba City and Marysville. Marysville was actually completely evacuated. This event would have a negative impact on Juan's mental health. The flood killed a total of 38 people, many of which were undocumented workers from Mexico and a lot of them were drafted in an effort to fix the levee. Juan, who had a chronic fear of water, suffered a complete mental breakdown. He believed everyone had died, and he was seeing the ghosts of people who once lived in the city. Oh, shit. Yeah. So on January 17, 1956, Natavidad committed Juan to DeWitt Mental Hospital in Auburn, California. During his time here, he was diagnosed as a paranoid schizophrenic. Hmm. He received 23 shock treatments in a period of three months in order to cure him. He was declared recovered and, once released, was deported back to Mexico. Now, Juan returned back to the U.S. just later that year. By 1959, Juan had found love again and married wife number two, Gloria Marino. Together... The two had four daughters. Juan became known in the community for having an extremely violent temper, and he was very public about his complete disdain 
for homosexuals, hmm. even though Natavidad was openly gay. Hmm. Even though he was unpredictable and had a twisted sense of morality, he was a trusted and hard worker. Now, in 1962, Juan became a licensed labor contractor and began working for himself. He hired his own workers to staff local fruit ranches. The men hired were usually migrant workers from Mexico and the homeless. He also provided housing for many of the men who worked for him in a bunkhouse on Sullivan Ranch. Now, according to most experts, it was less than adequate housing, though. Natavidad owned the Guadalajara Cafe in Marysville, where Juan would spend quite a bit of his time. He often found his laborers just across the street from this establishment. Early one morning, February 25th, 1970, a man named Jose Ramirez was at the Guadalajara Cafe, and after entering the restroom, Jose was attacked by an unknown assailant with a machete. Ooh. He was discovered by a customer around 1 a.m. Natavidad immediately called the police. Juan had been at the cafe during this time frame of the assault and was considered a suspect. The attack appeared to occur after Jose rejected the advances from Natavidad. Now, following this, Jose filed a lawsuit against Natavidad, winning the judgment of $250,000. Hmm. Now, this is in 1970. Right. However, rather than paying, Natavidad sold all of his properties and moved back to Mexico. Hmm. Now, around this time, Juan suffered a second schizophrenic episode and was briefly institutionalized in March 1970 at the same state hospital. Juan Corona targeted male itinerant workers between the ages of 40 and 65, many of which were homeless. He would first beat them in the face with a club or attack them with a machete, ensuring that they survived the attack. Wow. Then he would mutilate every victim, eventually leaving a cross carved into the back of their skulls. Oh, holy man, huh? He would usually deliver a final fatal blow to the chest, excluding one victim who was actually shot. Several of the victims were also found with their pants down around their ankles, and although Juan denied any sexual assaults, the body showed signs of this occurring. Hmm. Now, not much is known about Corona's life in Mexico, but it is speculated his sadistic ways started way prior to his migration to the U.S., once the victim had been killed, the name and date of the murder would be written down in a ledger that he kept. The bodies were usually disposed of on Sullivan Ranch. His motives remain a mystery, though. On May 19, 1971, farmer Goro Kagehiro found a large, freshly dug hole in the Sutter County peach orchard that he owned. Kagehiro asked employees who all had been hired through Corona's connections about this hole, and they said they knew nothing about it. Kagehiro let it go until the next day. When he returned to the orchard, uh, oddly, he found that the hole had been filled. Hmm. Now, the hole was far too large to be used for planting trees, so out of suspicion, he actually called the police. The police dug up the hole and found the body of a male drifter stuffed inside. Oh boy. This would be just one of the many victims, revealing a six-week-long spree that had left 25 victims in Corona's wake. On May 24th, workers in an adjacent farm spotted another filled hole. 
This too was dug up by police and produced another male body. During this search, another hole was found which contained yet another body. Hmm. All three men were drifters and farm workers who had all died from a similar wound to the chest. The investigation also produced some interesting evidence. In one of the graves, deputies found two meat receipts bearing Corona's signature. And in both of the other graves, there were crumpled Bank of America deposit slips printed with Corona's name and address. You may as well just left a business card. Yeah, smart. Although circumstantial, these slips provided a boost in the case. Through witness testimonies, police also discovered that some of the victims were last seen riding around in Corona's pickup truck. Oh, do it. Yeah. Well, this became enough for police to secure a warrant against Corona. On the morning of May 26, 1971, police entered Corona's home with a warrant in hand and arrested him. Evidence seized included two blood-stained knives, a giant machete, a pistol, and blood-stained clothing. Hmm. But probably the most important piece discovered was the blue ledger containing 34 names and dates, which included several known victims. Blood was also found in Corona's vehicle. Now, as a result of the information found, police organized an aircraft to take infrared photos of the area in order to locate more graves. By June 4th, the search had concluded, and the number of known victims was now up to 25. This was twice the body count of the Boston Strangler, who was, up to that point, the most prolific serial killer. Four of Corona's victims remain unidentified despite family and police efforts. Now, Corona was initially provided a public defender named Roy Vanden Heuvel. Okay. Heuvel hired several psychiatrists to evaluate Juan's mental state. Fuba. However, on June 14th, Heuvel was replaced by someone named Richard Hawk, who was a private attorney. Dick Hawk. Right? Hawk agreed to pursue the case as long as he retained the exclusive literary and dramatic rights to Corona's story, including the legal proceedings. Under this agreement, Corona waived the attorney-client privilege. Now, I thought that was really strange. He's like, yeah, I'll defend you, but I want the rights to your story. This doesn't sound good. He's a better writer than a lawyer. Before even reading the records on Corona, Hawk had decided to have him plead not guilty by reason of insanity and fired the psychiatrist. Mm. No mention was ever made of Corona's schizophrenia in the trial. Mm. The proceedings were then delayed twice, once because Corona was hospitalized after suffering two consecutive heart attacks and the latter due to the abolition of the death penalty in California. So, the trial actually began on September 11th, 1972. Corona denied culpability, and he was not called to the stand to testify, nor were any defense witnesses. The jury liberated for 45 hours, and on January 18th, 1973, Juan was found guilty of first-degree murder on all 25 counts. Hmm. He was sentenced to 25 consecutive life sentences without the possibility of parole. 25? After that first one, you think he'd be done. Right. However, through changes in the criminal legislation in California, Corona was granted a parole hearing after seven years. And shortly after this, his wife divorced him. Mm -hmm. In 1978, Corona was granted a retrial 
through an appeal based on his previous counsel not performing legal and factual investigation. Surprise! And secondly, the counsel obtaining publication rights as a fee, which was also, you know, not good. Yeah. It created a conflict of uh, between the two parties. Mm-hmm. So the second trial began on February 22nd, 1982. This new defense attributed the murders to Natavidad, wow. uh, not to Juan. They claimed Natavidad was a known homosexual who was prone to fits of rage, even citing the lawsuit from the patrons of his cafe. Natavidad had died a few years prior to the second trial. Fifty witnesses had been called during the retrial, including Juan himself. This trial lasted seven months and resulted in the jury finding Corona guilty on all counts. Again, Mm -hmm. they dismissed his brother's involvement, arguing that the defense didn't prove Natavidad was even in California at the time most of the murders occurred. Juan was sentenced to serve at Cochrane State Prison. Shortly after this retrial, Corona was stabbed 30 times by another inmate, Hmm. and this made him blind in his right eye. He didn't die, huh? No, no, but he did lose the sight in his right eye. During his final parole hearing in November of 2016, Corona finally admitting to to killing some of his victims before a California court for the first time, but... He claimed he did it because they were all trespassing on his property. Oh, okay. Yeah. So Corona then died on March 4th, 2019 from natural causes at the age of 85. We got a lot of weird fuckers on this planet. Yep. Just saying. Yes, we Get do. Get off my lawn or I'll, I'll probably I know. I'm gonna dismember you. I'm going to kill you. I'm going to, yeah, carve an X in your head. Mm-hmm. No, thanks. <laughs> Is that the story? That's the story. Okay. Friendly that, friends, that, I don't feel... No, what do you think, no, guys? that, that was, that was a like palate okay. cleanser before this next one. Oh, crocky fuck. Sorry for your sense and sensibilities. Are you ready? Story number three, engage. And now it's time for this week's final dipshit. Put your food down now, eh? All right. Friendly friends are on standby. <laughs> now, in this one, I kind of want to explain a little bit about... This one is a, a bit different. It's, it's scripted differently. Okay. Uh, in my research, I want wanted to make sure that I got all of the detail that was included. This story is not very long. It's very detailed though. So I wanted to make sure that I got all of that, but I didn't I didn't know how to capture it all and maintain the clarity of it. So what I did was half of this is written and the other half is actually transcribed interrogation footage. Oh boy. So I went through the footage and I transcribed the interrogation. So these are this person's actual words and the police officer's words. Okay. So I'm going to explain that. Now that I explained it, hopefully you guys get it. I'm following. All right. You ready? Mm -hmm. On March 27th, 2014, Kevin Davis rode his bicycle away from the apartment where he lived with his mother and his sister. After a while, he tossed his bike and his backpack behind some bushes and continued walking down the railroad tracks. Eventually, Kevin walked up to a house, knocked on the door, and asked to use their phone. The resident dialed 911 and told the operator that Kevin had just come to their home and told them that he had killed his mother, Kimberly Hill. When a Nooses County Sheriff's deputy arrived, he questioned Kevin, who told him the same thing. Kevin was taken to the Corpus Christi police station while officers rushed to the house to check on Kimberly. And when they arrived, they found her nude body laying in her bedroom, Mm. a bloody hammer on the floor beside her. 
It was evident that Kevin had indeed killed his own mother, but that was not all he had done to her that day. Of course not. Are you ready for this? Not really. Davis was born on December 27th, 1995. Now, not much is known about his childhood, but it seemed that by the time he was 18 years old, he'd become bored with his life. Hmm. And we begin the interrogation. Okay. Quote, Kevin. At the very beginning, I asked my mother for permission to die, or rather kind of commit suicide to sort of beating around the bush sort of thing. Because, well, it, it doesn't really matter why I wanted to kill myself, but I'm bored with life. I don't like life. I don't like people. I don't like living it, basically. There's really not anything depressing about it. Just is what it is. So I wrote the note. I did what I did. I wrote the note around 6, 7-ish yesterday. That, that's Sunday afternoon. The officer says, And then what happened? Did she get upset with you? Kevin, Well, kind of. Well, a- no, actually. I molded over and then on a whim, actually, I turned it over to a plan to kill both my mother and my sister, okay? Frankly, that's always been a thing of mine. I'm a bit of a pervert. So it's like a fantasy thing, and so best laid plans never work out, apparently, or at least the ones scribbled on a piece of paper, because she had decided she was sick of this stuff. She was going to send me to live with my sister again, so I kind of just left off in a fury. Just did it right then and there, end quote. Holy fuck. Kevin said that about 10 p.m. on March 26 was when he told his mother that he wanted to commit suicide. She responded that she couldn't control what he did, and if he did take his own life, she'd have to deal with it. Hmm. Kevin didn't like what what he had heard, so he decided to carry out a long-time fantasy. He jumped into action and attacked Kimberly. The detectives asked him to clarify exactly what he did. Uh Quote, this is Kevin. I tried to strangle her with a cord, a ripped cord from a video game controller console controller. That didn't work. She was sitting on the couch at this time, okay? And that didn't work out too well. She started screaming. So I went to her room. I opened the drawer at the very bottom to the right. I pulled out a hammer. I went back to the living room and, well, you kind of get the gist from there. Uh, She was out pretty quickly, kind of tried to play dead at first, so I finished it. Officer, so you hit her with a hammer when she was sitting on the sofa in the living room? Kevin. No, first I tried to strangle her because that didn't work because she grabbed the cord. So I raced back into her room. I got the hammer, came back out, and then I did it. Officer, oh, okay, so how many times did you hit her with the hammer in the living room? Kevin, at least 20, but then she was still alive. I dragged her into the room, as you probably clearly saw, and then I picked, well, I kind of wormed my hands into her brain because to just cut it, you know, she was still snoring. Police officer. Okay, so she was still alive? Mm -hmm. Yes, she was still alive. Well, did, did you use the knife on her? Kevin. Actually, I was going to, but no, I didn't get to do that. So... You never got to stab her with a knife? No, it was all with the hammer in my hand. And where did you hit her with the hammer? Oh, all in the head area. Um, I may have gotten her hand because she was covering herself. 
Yeah, you heard that right. After beating her in the head with a hammer, what the fuck? She was still alive. And he reached in. So he put his hands into her skull and mashed up her brain in order to make sure she was dead. All right, friendly friends it is. Friendly friends are friendly as fuck. Well, fuck me, kids. Hey, it's your favorite animal. It could be whatever you want. I'm here with Smiley the Unicorn. Hey, kids, I'm Smiley. Now, Smiley, would you agree that you're probably not supposed to see the brain of another person? That sounds terrible. It sure does, but just in case you see a brain, don't touch it. Yeah. Especially if it's in the skull still. Oh, jeez. As an example, I have this dead rabbit carcass with its brain bashed in. Holy shit. Now, see here. Oh, God. The brain's really in there, girl. So you kind of want to leave it alone. I hate this. Yeah, this little guy used to be a friendly friend. You look like you have a pretty nice brain. He would later tell detectives that her brains felt like putty. Hmm. What kind of person thinks to do that? I don't know. I mean, okay, so if you think this is bad, (laughs) buckle up because it's going to be a bumpy ride, folks. What? Yeah. So he goes into detail about exactly what he did next. Now back to the interrogation transcript we go. Officer. So when you dragged her to the bedroom, you kept on hitting her, and that's when you reached in and grabbed her brain? This is Kevin. Yeah, I kicked at it a bit. Then just, I know, it was kind of (laughs) silly. But then, yeah, I just decided to reach in and just kind of just do it. The officer. And then what did you do after that, Kevin? Oh, yeah, I had sex with her corpse. Okay. Of course you did. Okay. I I have to hand it to the officers in this interrogation. These two guys never miss a beat. I mean, this is some seriously sick shit. Mm-hmm. But they, they, they never really seemed phased. You can see by their facial expressions and their body language, they're horrifyingly uncomfortable. But they have to interrogate this kid who is willingly just telling them shit. Yeah. He is an open book. Okay, so back to the interrogation. Boy, boy. Hate to be those two cops. Officer, you did? Did did you come inside her, Kevin? Yes, I actually did, actually. Uh, Have you ever done anything like that before? Like, have sex? No, actually. I haven't, actually. It was my first time. So, yeah, I lost my virginity to a corpse. Ha ha. Wow. Holy shitballs. Okay. (laughs) Kevin explained that he had had sex with his mother's body after killing her. He told the investigators that he had violent thoughts since his preteens, and the idea of killing his mother and his sister had been in his head for a while. It seemed that his sister, Desiree Hill, also lived at home with Kimberly, and Kevin originally planned to wait until she got home and then kill her as well. But that didn't happen, and the detectives asked if she was okay. Kevin assured them that she was. Officer, was it a fantasy of yours to kill her as well? And would you write that? Did you write that down in your note? Kevin, oh, yeah, I did actually. But I decided against it because, well, I had my fill of killing. I didn't, I don't know, it just seemed like a little much. It seemed that the one murder was enough for Kevin. He didn't want to be excessive. (laughs) So instead of killing her, he he did leave a note to mess with Desiree. Hmm. Kevin would go on to write three notes in total and leave one in the living room addressed to his sister because, quote, I knew she, uh, well, she's a good girl, but rather sensitive. 
I knew she would lose her head if she kind of saw that. So I wrote, quote, keep your head, hurry, she might still be alive. What the fuck? Although I highly doubt it in parentheses, something along those lines. Wow, planet Earth, what are we doing here, man? But when I wrote the note, I knew my mom was already dead, so I was just messing with her. I have a sick sense of humor. I, I, <laughs> yeah, was, I was pretty well off my rocker by then, end quote. Oh, my God. I'm pretty sure Kevin's been off his rocker for a while. Yeah. So at this point, Kevin describes himself as being in a playful mood when he's asked about the second note that he left in his mother's bedroom. Kevin says that when, the, when he's asked, well, what does this, the other note say by the investigators? Kevin mm-hmm. says, chase me. I wrote it to the police. I don't know. I was just in a really playful mood at the time. I just wanted to run just to see how far I could get, end quote. So at this point, Kevin jumps on his bicycle and takes off, running from the scene. He eventually finds himself lost near train tracks, and he ditches his bike and his backpack in some bushes and then spent the rest of the night walking down the tracks. He got about 15 miles away before he walked up to a house and knocked on the door. He told the residents that he had killed his mother and he needed to notify the police. (laughs) One of the residents dialed 911 and Kevin was picked up by law enforcement without incident. He was then taken to the Corpus Christi police station while officers went to the Windrush apartments to check on Kimberly. And at the complex, at the apartment complex, officers knocked on the door and got no answer. So they had the apartment manager let them into the unit. There they found Kimberly's nude body on her bed, in her bedroom, with a trail of blood leading from the living room. There was a bloody hammer lying on the floor in the bedroom. Kevin's clothes were found inside the master bathroom off of Kimberly's room, and he later told investigators that he took a bath after the attack. Everything in the apartment matched Kevin's story, except for a bloody knife that investigators found at the scene. Kevin had told his detectives that he only used a hammer Mm -hmm. and hadn't stabbed his mother. However, when pushed on, when he was pushed on this detail, he finally remembered what he had done. Kevin. Oh, that knife. Yeah. I actually used that to stir her brains up a little to loosen them up. But when that didn't work out, I just kind of sat it down. Officer. So was this in the living room or in the bedroom? Kevin. Uh, I may have started that. Yeah, actually, I used the knife in the living room and then I didn't take it with me. So her her brains were already kind of coming out when I was in the living room. And family, friends are friendly as fuck. Yeah, me again. We went over the brain thing. Don't yeah. do that. But also, don't fuck corpses, okay? Okay. Why would I do that? That is all. All right. I was feeling friendly, friends. Okay. <laughs> Moving on. You were saying about the brain stir. So her, and, her brains were falling out in the living room. Yeah, that's uh, So he then said that she was still snoring like a baby. So, quote, I just kind of dragged her. Hmm. After officers confirmed that Kevin had, in fact, killed his mother... He was interrogated by detectives, where he openly admitted to everything he had done. One thing he couldn't do was give the investigators a reason for his actions, outside of being angry at her, at her response to his desire to commit suicide. He would actually go on to tell them, over a long period of time, that she was a wonderful person, 
She was the best mother. She had never done anything to him. Basically, quote, I'm just a terrible, terrible, disgusting person, end quote. Hmm. He's right. Now, it's unknown why Kevin turned himself in, but it's a good thing he did because it seems like he was definitely a serial killer in the making. Mm-hmm. And this this was even creepier. Okay, so above was pretty creepy, creepy but mm-hmm. this part of the interrogation had me, like, cringing. Oh, there's more. Good. So That's just great. When asked about how he felt in that moment, he stated that he had come to pay for his crime, but knew that since he was talking and sharing the truth, he may as well tell all of it. And when asked if he'd kill again, he said, absolutely, yes, he would. When the officers asked if he wanted to kill them, Kevin stated, quote, men aren't my thing, actually. I like women, actually, end quote. Like so many serial killers, Kevin wanted to inflict pain and suffering on women. With so much of Kevin's past being a mystery, it's unknown what turned his fantasies into violence against women, but his mindset was a perfect example of what a young serial killer would be thinking. Now, in an odd turn in the interrogation, detectives asked Kevin what his fantasy kill would be. Quote, maybe dressing up in a nice suit, you know, sneaking into her house, disabling her boyfriend, you know. Yeah, I bring a pretty dress with me to dress her up in, actually. I was always into strangling, but after that last blunder, I guess maybe something big and sharp would be more along more along my thing. And I could, I don't know, probably decapitate her as I prefer my women dead. I would dress her up. I'd stitch her up, kind of, just kind of try and work the head back on, perhaps. I don't know. And then I'd go to town, and it would be a night to remember. And then I'd just burn everything and then run for the hills. End quote. Yet another candidate to be shot from a cannon into the sun. It's very interesting. Dear Santa. (laughs) The part of Kevin's fantasy is to disable his victim's boyfriend. Now, he could simply fantasize about finding a woman alone, Mm -hmm. but he includes her being with her boyfriend so he can disable him. Mm -hmm. His fantasy includes a boost to his own ego, which I find fascinating. It's probably very common. So before the interrogation ended, the detectives had one last detail to clear up. Officer, quote, you mentioned that you lost your virginity to a corpse. Can you tell us a bit about what? happened with that and kevin says oh yeah that was last that was last night with my mother the officer as a matter of fact to do oh okay so not somebody else Uh, and kevin says no 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 and so the officer says so before that you had never had sex and then kevin says well i guess since i'm being quiet about it i may as well tell you now It's on the note, too. If you were to read it, it's on the P.S. part, actually. We used to have a gray cat named um, Claire. Oh, 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 yeah. Bestiality is a thing of mine, too. Yeah, now you know. (laughs) So I, uh, I strangled it. I drown it. And then I cut it open and... You know the rest. No, I mean, we you, don't. We you, don't want to know the rest. You, you kind of get the rest. Uh-huh. So you mean you had sex with a cat? Yeah, I ripped it open and just stuck it in there. So 
Cat. <laughs> oh, God damn it. Friendly friends help. Uh. Friendly friends are friendly as fuck. I'm just going to speak for the entire animal community. Uh, I guess we're going to circle back around to that don't fuck corpses thing. You should not fuck corpses. That's right, Smiley the Unicorn. That makes Smiley the Unicorn very unsmiley. Fuck yeah, it does. Yeah, so try not to kill things. And if you do kill things, you know, don't fuck them. This planet sucks. Yeah, that is all. <laughs> so, yeah. Fuck. <laughs> Your face is awful. Mm. This is, I wasn't sure if I was going to actually be able to read this. Mm. And now, you know what? After this interrogation, the word actually yeah. <laughs> might be something that really fucking bothers actually. me from here forward. Actually. Yeah, this sure. dude is creepy. Yeah. So, actually. Technically, Kevin lost his virginity to a dead cat. Oh, yeah, technically. Not no. not a dead not his dead mother. So <laughs> gross. So despite confessing to the murder, Kevin intentionally pleaded not guilty to the charges. Now, it's possible he was going to try to use an insanity defense, even though he told the detectives during his interrogation that he believed he was sane. No, you fucked a cat's fucking entrails. Well, You're, you know, he, there aren't people running around I like, know. well, maybe I'm and normal. And he stuck his hands in his mom's skull. Also, yes. Well, he even stated that he knew right from wrong. Now, he was evaluated by a psychiatrist who testified that he does have a personality disorder. Surprise. Yeah. But he wasn't considered insane by court standards. He knew what he was doing. He knew that it was wrong. So during it's the just trial, in that moment kind of thing. Ugh, ugh. Yeah. So the defense called no witness, and eventually Kevin changed his plea to guilty. Guilty as fuck. Kevin, Do they have a guilty as fuck plea? Guilty as fuck. Kevin Davis was sentenced to life in prison, and will be eligible for no. parole. In 2044. What is this, fucking Finland? Because it's California. God damn it, California. No, actually, it's Texas. Oh, yeah, that's right. So, it's in Corpus Christi. Yeah. yeah. So due to his blatant disregard for human life, his admission that he doesn't want to, that he does want to continue killing, and his complete lack of remorse for killing his own mother, it's unlikely that he will receive parole for quite some time after good. it becomes available to him, which is good, if yeah. ever. Well, the details about the cat, I feel like there should be some extra years uh, added on for that. Well, Kevin was a unique type of fucking crazy dipshit <laughs> who had all the makings of becoming a serial killer if he hadn't turned himself in. Right. Fortunately, he did. Right. Which is and he'll not something serial killers do generally. Right. Well, he'll, hopefully he'll spend the rest of his life in prison. Yeah, but he'll get off lenient for it. <sighs> Well, let's wrap this fucking nightmare up, shall we? Actually, I think it's a good idea. <laughs> right, play the music thing. And now it's time for the bloviation of our dipshits. Ah. That was a nightmare. I'm sorry. That was a fucking nightmare. Oh, my God. Okay, the research for this was... Oh, yeah, God, I'm, it was I, awful. The, that I put that middle story in there because I found it very... I found it interesting. Of course, it was bad because it was about murder. 25 murders, yeah. But, yeah, the Boston Strangler... I think it was a Boston or the Hillside Strangler. He was over and above that guy. So at that time, he was the lead serial killer in 1973, I think. Right. But I put that story, I sandwiched those two stories together, that one in the middle, because I thought we needed a palate cleanse after <laughs> boiling the head in the pot yeah. before we made it to fucking the cat and sticking his hands in his mom's skull. Those are both pretty hardcore. Mm-hmm. Trying to imagine what that police officer or both of them or any of them saw when they opened the pot mm -hmm. was pretty harsh. Yep. And I 
been down that road before with Kroll, uh-huh. just like that, yeah. and there's some other people. Well, you know, with, with Kevin Davis, for our listeners who are interested in hearing the entire ter- inter- interrogation, the mm-hmm. whole thing is out there. Actually, actually, there was some edits made. Uh, there were a few things that were removed, not removed, but just kind of rewritten. But I did the interrogation when I quoted it. It's quoted directly. And I can't, I cannot deliver the creep value that mm. this guy can. I was going to ask you. I did my best. With the, the actually was creepy. Well, For some reason it came across obnoxious it was he is obnoxious and he's so was he arrogant during this time or was he was he he was just nonchalant about it so it was as if he were talking about his teacher's conference or something a hundred percent that the words that came out of his mouth the only thing he was apprehensive about really was the end when he was talking about the cat when he said well i humped a kitty he rubbed his eyes a little bit and he said well since i'm I'm, since I'm telling you everything, basically, he came through with the cat story. Everything, and he he laughed at himself, joked about things. It was just creepy. Well, it he's coming to the so realization creepy. that his reality is highly askew from. He doesn't. What he knows is right. And he wrong, doesn't care. Like, yeah, yeah, and he doesn't seem to care. I don't know if knowing right from wrong makes you not. I mean, a lot of people, human beings are wired funny just in general. We're all uh-huh. kind of weird, but you don't fuck the entrails of a cat. You don't a, chop off your mother's head and put it in a pot. But that and, happened before, right? The cat happened obviously well, before. Well, the, the cat was before he killed his right. mother. Well, thank you for those three terrible things. You're welcome. I'm and sure to our to, listeners that were wanting the friendly friends. Those were forced. Those were straight up they're necessary. Awful. Awful. Yeah, that was. Well, you wanted friendly friends. There you go. I, d- I never said I did. <laughs> it's a defense mechanism for my sanity. But I'm, you know, I'm sorry. Thanks honey. for triggering four of them <laughs> in one short hour, one very long hour, as far as I'm concerned. Mm. Well, there were some moments that people probably, if they were eating, I'm I tried had some trouble. The trigger warning in the very beginning of you this did. episode. I did my best to let everyone know that you may not want to listen. Throughout to this the one. course of a podcast, sometimes you need a snack. God damn it! Ugh. Sometimes you forget the thing in the beginning. Thank you guys for listening. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for the research and oh, for putting this, yourself through that. This one was awful. Let's have let's do a couple weeks of some fun things. Next week we have uh, it's already written. Right, the so epic stories. The epic stories. And yes. Then after that, let's we'll find some like fuzzy animal to do research on. <laughs> we'll talk about our <laughs> favorite dinosaurs. Something cute or something. All right. We'll do a, a massive chicken update. And the <laughs> mystery of why chickens have the cutest little run because they're little butts. <laughs> Thank you guys for listening, as I said. Yes. We appreciate our trusted turd triad, mm-hmm. Don the Shitbox Wizard. We've got Chris the Discord Dookie Slayer and Bodie the... What the fuck is he? The Quartermaster. The quartermaster. We were going to give him another name. He came. Somebody came up with another Did name they? for him. Did they? I think so. I only know Quartermaster. It might have been Angus, though, so it probably doesn't count. My brain is filled with a lot of things. That is are it? A lot of... Little pieces and parts going on in Scatcast <laughs> Land, but thank you to those three. They do lots of stuff for us. So does mm-hmm. PJ and Minnie. Yes, thank and you. They help us in the Reddit world, and they help mm-hmm. us obviously in the Facebook and all the social media worlds. 
We appreciate everyone that's doing that stuff. We got Lucifina Lightbringer in the Shipbox Crafters. We've got David Carpenter doing at least a couple pages mm-hmm. for us. Yeah. Jose Montez, the new Northwesterner. Yep. He's uh, Jargoneers. He's our Jargoneer guy. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of them, folks. Yeah. Every time I do this, I feel like, oh, man, I don't want to forget anybody. I know. So I need a big thing on the wall of like all these lovely people. <laughs> but to our Scat Meme Army, much love and respect. Appreciate you guys. you guys. You guys are pushing this stuff, and it's mm-hmm. getting all over the place. So we appreciate it a lot. Info at scatcast.com is the place to let us know mm-hmm. where how we're doing yeah or what you think about the if world you want to yell at me for delivering the stuff that i did today go ahead info at scatcast.com triggering four yep. friendly friends yikes it's a lot of friendly friends and yeah. a lot of fur and fuzz uh, i i can't believe the words actually came out of my mouth i was able to say the words of that of the script i wrote that was gross it was awful yeah so patreon.com mm-hmm. forward slash scatcast you can find uh, one extra episode mm-hmm. of the dipshit files and more, more to, come, to there. come yes that's right and that's how you help us that's mm-hmm. the only way there's also merch at scatcast.com mm-hmm. but you know how to do all that stuff yep. subscribe do the things with the stars or a review <laughs> type thing yeah. you don't have to do any of that but if you if i'm reminding you and you're like oh i wanted to do that yeah, maybe ahead. now's the time for you yeah. to do that that'd be great it helps us it does if you're on spotify you can leave a comment right now right yep. but right down below tell us how well appreciate you guys thanks so much as always we'll talk at you in the future and actually it'll seem like the present bye bye <laughs> Bing. Bong. Actually. Oh, God. <laughs> <sighs>